This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Cable news is ripping us apart, dividing the nation, making it impossible to function as a society and to know what is true and what is false. The good news is that they're failing and they know it. That is why we're building something new. Be part of creating a new, better, healthier, and more trustworthy mainstream by becoming a Breaking Points premium member today at breakingpoints.com. Your hard-earned money is going to help us build for the midterms and the upcoming presidential election so we can provide unparalleled coverage of what is sure to be one of the most pivotal moments in American history. So what are you waiting for? Go to breakingpoints.com to help us out. Good morning, everybody. Happy Tuesday. We have an amazing show for everybody today. What do we have, Crystal? Indeed we do. I don't know if y'all heard, but the whole Elon Musk buying Twitter thing <laughs> actually happened, um, spawning terrible takes from every corner of the ideological spectrum, it's especially from the media. So yes. we'll have the details of the deal, what it might mean. I think it's very uh, up in the air what it will actually mean, but what it might mean, what the takes are, and whether or not Trump is going to return mm -hmm. to the platform or something that That's everybody, right. has, of course, had their eyes on. Speaking of Trump, um, new audio from Kevin McCarthy revealed that he has been lying about what he said leading up to January 6th, with, and actually after January 6th with regards to the president. He was pressed on it by a Fox News reporter multiple times. Um, so we'll play that for you and give you our analysis there. Um, also, this is from a couple days ago, but we wanted to make sure to bring you this report of MBS, uh, you know, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, actually yelling at Tony Blinken, our yeah. Secretary of State. Uh, uh, yeah, freaking out at him in yeah. a meeting. Yeah. Right, exactly. Uh, and so we're going to talk through that, what it means ultimately for the U.S.-Saudi relationship. New reporting about Kamala Harris and who she is seeking counsel from, which is pretty funny. And some very, very good news. Stephen Donziger, who has been imprisoned and persecuted by Chevron and a corrupt justice system, is officially free. 
He was released from house arrest. There's a big block party yesterday. We have some exclusive footage of him um, with our new partner, partner Jordan Cheriton of Status Quo. Really excited to take a look at that and talk about um, what that means as well. Kim Kelly is here, great friend of the show, incredible labor reporter out with a new book, tracking the history of the labor movement, parts of it that you may not know. But let's, in fact, start with Elon Musk. That's right. Okay, we got a lot of stuff going on here. So we'll start with the news in general. Let's put this up there on the screen. It came across the wire at 3 p.m. yesterday. So there it is, Elon Musk to acquire Twitter. So I'm just going to read here from the official press release. This includes statements from Elon, from the board of directors, and others. Brett Taylor, who is the independent board chair, said, quote, the Twitter board conducted a thoughtful and a comprehensive process to assess Elon's proposal with a deliberate focus on value, certainty, financing. The proposed transaction will deliver a substantial cash premium. We believe it is the best path forward for Twitter stockholders. So the official Twitter sale price is $54.20 a share, meaning that Elon has acquired the company for approximately $44 billion. The transaction terms are actually quite interesting. We have to talk a little bit about it. Musk has secured $25.5 billion of fully committed debt and margin loan financing and is providing an additional $21 billion equity commitment. What he means by that is that Elon's got $21 billion in cash that he will be wiring the company. Imagine that. The rest of it is uh, pulled on on debt financing. The debt financing part is important for the future of Twitter, and I will get to that in a second. So let's go ahead and put then Elon's additional response there, which was included. This is the full quote from Elon Musk as to why exactly he wanted to acquire Twitter in the first place. And what you can see there is that he says, free speech is the bedrock of a functioning democracy. Twitter is the digital town square where matters vital to the future of humanity are debated. I also want to make Twitter better than ever by enhancing the product with new features, making the algorithms open source to increase trust, defeating the spam bots, and authenticating all humans. Twitter has tremendous potential. I look forward to working with the company and the community of users to unlock it. Let's put the next one up there on the screen, please. And what you can see is that he says, I hope that may even my worst critics remain on Twitter because that is what free speech means. Very interesting to me, Crystal, that he's leaning more into the free speech aspect, mm. even though he's still certainly has a monumental economic task ahead of him. So he took out $22 billion in loans, both against his Tesla stock and uh, both against his Tesla stock and I believe against some of his other holdings. Now, why that matters is that what I was reading today at a 4 to 5% interest rate, Elon has got to pay back $1 to $2 billion per year just in debt in order to make sure that the company doesn't go bust and he remains on top of that. Now, Personally, he can probably make that happen. But if he doesn't want to take a massive bath, that means a couple of things. Well, there's going to be a lot of layoffs at Twitter. I don't see any way mm -hmm. that he can be able to run the company. So they have about 300 to $400 million in payroll. So right now, Parag Agarwal, the CEO in a town hall, he's like, look, all of your jobs are safe for a year, you know, all of that. So in the immediate term, Elon has got to come up with a serious amount of cash out of this company in order to start paying back some of this loan. Like I said, he could run it like a newspaper paper and just take a loss on this thing right. for many years. But that's still a precarious financial position. No person on earth wants to lose literally a billion per year. Right. Yeah, so, so on the one hand, him taking the company private yes. means that he does not have to have that fiduciary responsibility of the profit margin right. and you know shareholder interest is the end-all be-all. That gives him a certain amount of flexibility to pursue, to pursue ideological ends that are not directly related to the profit margin. Yep. But what you're pointing out is that doesn't mean that there isn't 
any pressure on him financially to ultimately make and keep the product profitable and keep it growing and all of those things. So there are competing interests here. And I also just would say, you know, it's one thing to say, like, I'm for free speech and it's the bedrock of democracy. I think everybody should, whether you're like, you hate this and you're freaked out about it or whether you think this is the greatest thing that ever happened, I think everybody should temper their expectations a little bit until we see what he actually does. That's right. And so it's going to take three to six months for this deal to actually close. There's still a lot of P's and Q's and all these things that have to be minded and you know, everything has to be crossed and signed and et cetera. And the top 2,000 shareholders of Twitter, they are not going to be bought out of the company if they decide to stay. So some of the top executives. Now, in terms of CEO Par- Parag Agarwal, here's what he said, quote, let's put it up there on the screen. Twitter has a purpose and a relevance that impacts the entire world. Deeply proud of our teams and inspired by the work that has never been more important. So some interesting stuff happening in the all hands on deck meeting that happened yesterday with details leaking out. The number one concern, Crystal, by Twitter employees is will we continue to be able to work from home? (laughs) Apparently that was their top one. Kind of fair. Totally fair. Jack Dorsey said that the entire company would be remote work forever. Elon famously is very against remote work, but obviously that's in a car production facility, not really the same. Obviously, Twitter can probably run entirely remotely outside of their server maintenance people, which I believe are currently working in the office. So we don't know what's going to happen on that end. The economics, all of this, though, really do point to a precarious position for the business. I mean, they reported just yesterday Twitter is a company that is not doing particularly well. We've pointed before, they've lost, I believe, $850 million over the life cycle as a public company. They have a big problem in terms of being entirely reliant on ad revenue. Jack Dorsey actually put out a very interesting thread yesterday where he really revealed some of the behind-the-scenes stuff. And here's what he said. He says, The idea and the service is all that matters to me. I will do whatever it takes to protect both. Twitter as a company has always been my sole issue and my biggest regret, it has been owned by Wall Street and the ad model. Taking it back from Wall Street is the correct first step. Agree with him on that. I absolutely agree with him. him You know, I mean, we can say from our personal experience, a lot of people before we launched were like, maybe you should take on investors and all this. And we were like, you know, we don't want to be beholden to somebody. We want to run this. You know, let's say we have to burn cash for a couple of months in order to make the product better. I don't want to be accountable to anybody else. Yeah. And that's, you know, times a million whenever you're uh, beholden to the public stockholders. That's right. And I think, um, you know, I think our audience closely follows um, media and corporate media and different business models there and understands very clearly how we chose a different business model because if you rely on an ad-driven model, then ultimately who you're serving is not the audience. You're serving those uh, corporate sponsors. That's what it is. That's Mm -hmm. what that model is. And so ultimately, that's what Twitter and all of these social media uh, platforms, including YouTube, that's what they're really all about is serving those corporate sponsors, not providing you with a good experience or a platform that is beneficial to democracy or any of those things. So I think he is really correct there when he says that um, the problem, uh, a core problem, one of the core problems has been it being owned by Wall Street and the ad model. He also says, and I think this is also really interesting, in principle, I don't believe anyone should own or run Twitter. It wants to be a public good at a protocol level, not a company. Solving for the problem of it being a company, however, Elon is the singular singular solution I trust. I trust his mission to extend the light of consciousness. Elon's goal of creating a platform that is, quote, maximally trusted and broadly inclusive is the right one. This is also, he goes on to say, the current CEO Parag's goal and why I chose him. Thank you both for getting the company out of an impossible situation. This is the right path. I believe it with all my heart. 
listen, like I said, remains to be seen whether Elon's words actually match up with his actions. But the other thing that this has sparked is some speculation of whether or not Elon might bring Jack back yes. as CEO. Because it seems like what Jack hated the most about running the company was dealing with, you know, it being a public company and dealing with the, the shareholders and dealing with the board. And so as a private company, you do have a little bit more flexibility to treat it as an idea and use your creativity and have goals other than just profit maximization. And so potentially that, I mean, that certainly is possible that they would go in that direction. Yeah, it's very interesting to me. You know, I was telling you before, I, I, I reread uh, Elon Musk's biography and he sent a very interesting email to SpaceX back in 2013, which really reflects his mindset as to why private companies are better. I'm not going to read the entire thing, but I do encourage you guys to go and read it. And what he points to there is that being beholden to the public markets, dealing with the short sellers, dealing with the fact of quarterly by quarterly results. And in SpaceX's case, you're trying to go to space. That is the definition of a long-term business. Guess what doesn't get rewarded by Wall Street? If you have one bad quarter, stock is going to go down. And what he says here is that by going public in regards to SpaceX, it would open itself up to making the wrong strategic moves in just the goal of trying to increase its share price. And whenever your only goal is to increase share price as a public company, which at the end of the day technically is your only fiduciary responsibility, it leads to all sorts of wonky behavior, which is actually bad for the company, but also bad for the country. Yeah. I mean, we point out, how many times have we pointed here before, buying back your own stock as a company makes a lot of sense if your only goal is to increase share, price. share price. But if, let's say, you're Boeing and, you know, you're the backbone of the American aerospace industry. Well, well, now what happens? Now you have a plane that literally doesn't fly in the sky yeah. and crashes and kills 500 people because you bought $10 billion with your own stock and did not invest it in R&D. So there's a lot of interesting commentary at a meta level as to why private companies can be very superior to a public company. Yeah. And I, one thing I like about this whole thing is that it's causing people who may not have considered some of those things yeah, before that's right. That's right. Um, yeah. to consider you know, the downfall of making profit margins and shareholder value, the end-all be-all of not just your economy, but your entire society. And for a lot of billionaires, the only thing they really care about is the game of making money. Mm -hmm. Like, this has never made sense to me, this idea of, like, I'm already a billionaire, but I'm really super dedicated to just keeping, continuing to make as much money as possible. But there are people who just, like, love that game yeah. of, you know, Wall Street traders, hedge fund guys, private equity dudes. Like, there's a lot of folks who just... When they're a billionaire, they just want to continue that game of making money. But I feel like it's possible for both Elon and Jack that that's just not the most interesting game for them. That's not the mm -hmm. thing that ultimately is core to what drives them. Yes. And so if that is the case for you, then it makes sense to have a private company where you can have more flexibility to pursue some of the other things that are your ends in addition to, not saying making money is not important to these guys, but in addition to um, profit maximization. Listen, guys, I think it's always important to say, and I say this every time we talk about Elon, relying on any billionaire to solve the country's problems is a bad idea. And as I said on Twitter, um, tussling over like which billionaires are going to save or doom us is just about the bleakest form of politics I can ultimately imagine. 
But, you know, I think there are some, uh, I'm trying to trying to keep the reasons that we should be hopeful about this in mind, because ultimately Twitter is a really consequential platform in terms of our public square and in terms of our democracy. And if it ru- is run in a somewhat better way with some other goals in mind versus just profit maximization, that could ultimately be a good thing for society. I, I think you're right. And, and like I said, we have, a, I've had a lot of problems with Elon Musk and, you know, we'll get to this uh, yeah. a little bit later in terms of the connections with China and some of the other decisions that he's made. But I think also the greatest business lesson of the last 20 years, you should never bet against him. And whenever he says he's going to do something, he generally will do it. Um, And I think that that, you know, if he sticks by the reasons why he bought the company, then it will work out. At the same time, we should not forget these real economic realities. The guy owes a billion a year in in cash back to the bank. That's a lot of money. And this is the same predicament that has caused many public companies in order to go the wrong way. Elon may be ideologically committed, hopefully, to ditching the ad model and going direct to subscription. But at the same time, Crystal, how many people are really going to pay for Twitter? Are you? I don't. I honestly, I don't think I will. Like, I, I, I value it as a news gathering service. Maybe it would be I a business you as a business I, expense. It's possible. Right. I think because of what we do, right. we would probably. I mean, we rely on Twitter so much for surfacing stories for yes. the show and all of that. We would probably pay for it, but we're weirdos. Yeah, that's, so. <laughs> I, I think you're right. And, and, and let's say I didn't have this job. I honestly, I no. don't think I would pay for it. I, and so, honestly, if I didn't have this job, I don't even think I'd be on Twitter, yeah, that's to be right. honest with you. So there you go. I mean, that matters a lot. Now, at the same time, though, speaking of people who have this job and who are in the liberal media, these people are freaking out about Elon's acquisition and specifically about the free speech aspect. As usual, we can count on the one, the only Brian Stelter for having the absolute worst take possible on this in immediate reaction. Let's take a listen. Look, who knows? I, I think that's, a, a, that's, a, that's a, an example of a broader question for Twitter, which is, if you, uh, if you get invited to something where there are no rules, where there is total freedom uh, for, for everybody, do you actually want to go to that party or are you going to decide to stay home? And that's a question for Twitter users. Some Twitter users might love the idea. That there's going to be absolutely no moderation and no rules at all. Others might not want to be anywhere near that. Am I, am I crazy, Matt? No, no, you're right. And what, what happens to the advertising? I mean, if there's no moderation or little moderation, do the right. advertisers stay away? What does that do to the, yeah. the business prospects for Twitter itself? All I right. think that's very much an that uh, that party sounds like a banger, Crystal. I don't know. <laughs> I, you know, there's one thing. When I get invited to a party, the first right. thing I want to know what is the there rules? are going to be rules in place, right? Because otherwise, I'm right. out. Right. I actually, like, I genuinely at this point have affection for Brian Stelter because <laughs> he tri- is trying so hard. Sagar, he is trying so hard. Hard. He spent time workshopping this whole party analogy yeah. thing in his head, and never once did it occur to him that actually people do want to go to parties yeah. without rules. <laughs> and it's it's silly to start with because it's not like Twitter's going to have no rules, right. or that there are you know no rules already bounding and guiding the limits of free speech. You cannot directly threaten somebody as one you know example. So it's not like it's going to be completely wild and crazy and anything, absolutely anything goes. Um, but yeah, the, the faces around the table, I don't know if you paid attention, they were like oh, yeah, ranging like, from what? contempt, confusion, to just like humoring this poor guy. Before the other dude actually makes a decent point yeah, about I was gonna say. the whole reason that the content moderation is what it is has been to satisfy the advertisers. Yep. So if you take that piece out of it, and that's less important, not that it's going to be completely unimportant, but if it's less important and you're actually just trying to figure out 
what is the right and consistent content moderation policy, you're much more likely to come up with something that is beneficial for everybody versus just trying to make it safe for a bunch of squeamish corporate advertisers. 100%. And you know, you can also keep this with the rest. Also, I love how you put it that way. In Texas, we just say, bless your heart, Brian. Yeah, that's um, it, that's yeah, it. That's, that's, that's exactly that's the sentiment. That's the sentiment that you're putting forward. Let's put these up there on the screen. Some hilarious ones uh, from our friend Shu. She says, today on Twitter feels like the last evening in a Berlin nightclub at the twilight of Weimar, Germany. Oh my God. Another one, I am frightened by the impact on society politics if Elon Musk acquires Twitter. He seems to believe on social media anything goes. For democracy to survive, we need more content mo content moderation, not less. Another, if Elon Musk successfully purchases Twitter, it could result in World War III and the destruction of our planet. And finally, dear Parag Agarwal, if you're reading this right now, the world needs to know you are stronger, smarter, and more tenacious than Elon Musk. He thinks he can beat you. The free world needs to know he is wrong. Yours truly, a lifelong and long verified Twitter user. What a loser using your verified status. It's not that cool, bro. Yeah. Trust me. <laughs> the Verge also came in with a hilarious take. Let's put this up there on the screen. They say, how to deactivate your Twitter account, which is just absolutely incredible. Obviously, they're one of those tech uh, hall monitor type outlets. Well, and there are plenty of liberals on Twitter who were like, I'm deactivating. I'm not going to Yeah, oh, I'm this moving to Canada. This is my last tweet. I'm quitting Twitter, et cetera. Actually, Actually, Sean King actually did it, which, you know, props to Sean King yeah. for finally leaving True. us and all he had alone. A he had a big following, yeah, too, big following. so it's a real loss. Yes. But yeah, I mean, it's, listen, <laughs> there was so many bad takes all the way around. I don't know if you also saw this, but Richard Hanania, yeah. who is, you know, we've had him on the right. show before. He's, like, definitely, you know, on the right in terms of uh, his politics and definitely not terrified of uh -huh. Elon taking over. He tweeted out something sarcastically. Oh, his, uh, like, the trolling. master's thing. Yeah, that yeah, was being like, by the way. Elon Musk doesn't yep. even have a master's degree. <laughs> Are we going to trust this man with right. our democracy? And there were literally thousands of people who thought he was being serious. Oh, right, right. And he continued to, like, in the thread, yeah, make it more and more funny. ridiculous. Yeah. And they still did not get the joke. So you had people who just, like, did, you know, couldn't see sarcasm where there was obvious sarcasm. You had clearly, you know, the liberals that were highlighting here who were completely freaking out, who obviously were so much less concerned when Jeff Bezos bought one of the most significant significant and important news gathering organizations in the entire country, which he still owns, but that was fine. And in fact, not only was it fine, but if you, like Bernie Sanders do, point out that this could be a problem for democracy, you were roundly mocked, shamed, disparaged, et cetera, et cetera. How dare you attack our news outlets? So there was, you know, there was that reaction. And then I think there's for um, the segment of the right that has been rightly concerned about elite power and control, that is just completely celebratory about the idea of handing their fate over to a billionaire that they happen to have more affectionate feelings for, which, again, you know, it's certainly not an answer to our bigger problems. Will it potentially be marginally better? Maybe. We'll wait and see. But if you're put it, pinning all your hopes on, like, let's have a different, better billionaire, then I don't think you're going to end up ultimately in a good place. Yeah, I think you're right. And, you know, to try and add some substance to this, it's a really interesting poll that Teddy Scheifer actually tweeted out over Puck News. He does great work, by the way. Let's 
let's put this up there on the screen, is that there's a poll here highlighted by Data for Progress and at Recode. This was in February of 2021. Elon Musk is actually very popular across the board. So his favorability and unfavorability for Democrats is 52-22, meaning he has high favorability and a pretty unknown unfavorability. Amongst Republicans, his actually favorability is lower. It's 48 and 25. Amongst men, it's 61, 66-21. Women is 37-27. Don't really have an opinion, it seems. Amongst young people, is very popular, 54 to 22, and at 45 plus at 48 to 25. So what he says here, and I think is really true, is the real schism is really not a public opinion on Musk between Democrats and Republicans. It's between men and women. Yeah, that's and right. Interesting. Really, when you point out the favorability, I just think it, it bears repeating that normal people think of Elon in the context of Tesla and the context of SpaceX. They may have seen some of his antics, but they respect him as probably the greatest entrepreneur uh, in the U.S. over the last 20 years. And they don't really think about him beyond that. Well, that's, the th yeah. that's the thing. Is yeah. Normal people probably just don't think that hard about yeah, him like, or have yeah, like he, a he's, really he's fine. super <laughs> evolved view on right. like all of the things that he's done or said or et cetera. <laughs> it is funny. Yeah, it was interesting to me that there was basically no partisan divide whatsoever. Yep. Um, it was very, very closely matched, uh, Democrat, Independent, and Republican. The big schism was dudes really love them. So mm -hmm. Elon Musk, I women, like Elon. not yeah. so sure. <laughs> yeah. um, and he does, I mean, just as his like, public persona, I know there, there is something about him that's like, magical to men, you know, especially young men under the age of, let's say, 50 or 40 or something like that. Um, there, that is definitely where his key demo and his, like, core superpowers lie. Well, so. he's like a teenager in a lot of ways. I mean, that's kind of how he behaves. Yeah. Uh, he's, I mean, he's very childlike. If you, if you read his, like I said, you read his biography, he literally talks about, he's like, his dream was to be a wizard <laughs> whenever he was a child. <laughs> he had a very tough childhood, to be fair. Apparently, his dad was kind of a psycho. And, oh, really? But, yeah, didn't treat him very well. Him his brother and put a lot of uh, anyway, pressure on You should him. go and read the book. Yeah, he was he was not treated well. Apparently, he was very emotionally abusive as a father. Mm. But really, what it pulled into him is he was uh, he was a huge nerd. I mean, that's really the only thing that comes out of it. He was bullied terribly whenever he was in high school. He was obsessed with computer games and coding, and that's why he became the computer scientist that he eventually became. But what you learn about him is that he's quite an impulsive person. He's a lot like a child. He said his dream, and now that he's a billionaire, is to be as much like a wizard as possible. Whenever he was interviewed, most recently. So I think that's why he appeals to like the, um, I mean, look, at the end of the day, the man did manifest several of his actual visions, which is a lot more than many people can say in life. So I think that you point to an interesting phenomenon there about what the actual divide is and probably why it, where it actually cuts ideologically. But it just points to the fact that these liberal you know, media folks, the establishment types are just so freaked out because I think at the end of the day, they know that their ability to pressure Twitter in order to censor exactly as they want is over. And that yeah. is where the real power of, that they've had over the last several years has come from. Well, they have this whole ideology that the way to combat ideas that they consider to be bad or dangerous ideas is just to shut them out, mm -hmm. um, to censor them, you know, push them out of polite society. And that, you know, I think there's a genuine fear and belief that... Like, that's the way that we can keep this whole thing together. I just happen to think that's not only wrong, but extremely counterproductive yep. and leads you down the path of ultimately destroying the democracy that you think you're trying to protect. And so their ideology depends on the ability to, you know, to have their ideology reinforced and have people who don't agree with that pushed out of the public square. So 
I think that's why there's such a freak out here versus, you know, when it's Jeff Bezos, who is definitely not on the left in any meaningful sense, but is going to be anti-Trump, is going to be, you know, with them more or less when it comes to social issues. They didn't perceive that as a threat, even though, you know, anyone who's being consistent here should just see that billionaires controlling our news gathering, our public squares is a big problem in society, whether you happen to be comfortable with that billionaire or not. Um, I saw another poll similar to this uh, Data for Progress poll that actually was an internal poll of Twitter employees. Mm, yeah. Because a lot of the narrative around Twitter employees is like, they're freaking out, and oh my God, they hate Elon, and they can't, you know, they were so worried about it. he's going to destroy Twitter, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't doubt that because, like you said, there are likely to be layoffs, and they're mm. not sure what this means for their stock holdings, and is the headquarters even going to stay in San Francisco, and are they going to be able to continue to work from home? I don't doubt that there are a lot of concerns and angst around what it means literally for them and their livelihoods in their day to day. But in terms of sentiment around Elon, this particular poll internally, it was completely divided. Um, You had, you know, an equal amount that liked him, an equal amount that didn't like him and a group in the middle that was like, eh, not sure. We'll see. My guess would be that the technologists and the engineers are probably the ones who are most excited about him because they're more familiar with what he did at Tesla and at SpaceX. And my guess would be that the, like that lady who went on Joe Rogan's podcast, Vijay Agade, the head of like trusted safety, is probably freaking out because I hope that she gets fired. That's exactly the people. Those are the people who are the chief censors. So the, I would split the company into like the technology Technologists are probably excited about Elon, and then the HR industrial, you know, diversity industrial complex within the company is the ones who are freaking out the most. But look, maybe I'm wrong. Who knows? Uh, I mean, because you could also imagine a scenario where the people who are involved in content moderation have hated the fact that they've been constrained by corporate advertisers and their concerns. So who knows what the breakdown is? But I did find that interesting that the internal sentiments around him were not we're actually very evenly divided, at least according to this poll. Yeah, I think a lesson of the show is always is things are a lot more complicated than people think. Okay. <laughs> Let's yeah, go ahead and true. move on to the final part here, or actually no, the second to last part of our Twitter discussion, which is Donald Trump. Is he coming back or is he not? Well, here's what he has to say. Let's put it up there on the screen. Trump says, I'm not coming back to Twitter, even if Elon runs it. I am fully committed to Truth Social, mm-hmm. okay. the platform which he has only posted on one time. So here's what he said in a Fox News interview. The former president told Fox he will formally join his own Truth Social over the next seven days. Quote, I'm not going on Twitter. I'm going to stay on Truth. I hope Elon buys Twitter because he'll make improvements to it and he is a good man. But I am going to be staying on Truth. Trump told Fox News he will be truthing over the next week. The Trump Media and Technology Group has formally launched last month and is finally up and running. Although, Crystal, we don't know yet uh, where exactly you stand oh, in I, the queue. I have an update. I got on. Okay. Oh, okay. I All got right. On. So yeah. we're, we're, we're and then in the I, game, I immediately folks. deleted it from my phone. Good. But yeah. yes, I, I did. I did ultimately. They were like, verify your phone number. Right. I did it. I ah. sort of regret giving them my, my, oh, my phone number. That was a little scary. But yeah. anyway, yeah. So I did that. I got on. They started recommending accounts to me, all uh-huh. of which were exactly Cringe. what you expect. Yeah. They were like, maybe you want to follow Don Jr. Yes. <laughs> maybe yeah. you want to follow. Like, yeah, it was it was everything you would ultimately expect. So, I think there it's you go. funny for a variety of reasons. First of all, uh, maybe the audience could take, actually, James, if you're listening, go ahead and post a poll on this. I want to see if the YouTube audience agrees with me. Uh, will Donald Trump be able to stay off Twitter? Not mm. 
a chance in hell, Crystal. No. Yeah, this man so. craves attention more than anything on the planet. And also the the SPAC, which uh, is the holding company for True Social, yeah. down 13% well, on the so news. Well, so that, that's my question. Yeah. And I think you could answer this better than me. Yeah. Does he care more about attention or money? Because oh, these both, two things right attention. now are yeah. directly at odds. Right. Because what Truth Social has is him. I mean, that's basically their whole thing. It's like, this is the platform where you can hear from the president. Right. And, you know, and we have these different content moderation issue policies. But the the distance between their policies and Twitter are likely to lessen there, too. So then the only key advantage they have is that this is where you can go to hear from President Trump. So, yeah, if he bails from the platform or uses, you know, other platforms like Twitter, if he goes back to Twitter, then that is a major financial hit for his own company that he has, you know, significant um, significant incentive to juice the price of. So I those think, two things are at odds. I think he cares more about attention. Honestly. I tend to agree He's with flamed you. out. So how many businesses is the man flamed out here? Okay, like, and he's got enough money that he'll be fine. And, you know, crashing and burning a business and then still blustering about how it was the greatest idea or whatever is yeah. tried and he's true stock and strategy. Trade. He knows how Donald to do Trump. that. Yeah, he's been doing it for his entire life. So yeah. I don't think there is a chance in hell that Trump actually stays off of Twitter, especially if he's going to run for president and again, I, there's just no way to me. I mean, the man at the end of the day loves the attention. I was once in the Oval Office when I saw him, when I was interviewing him, and he like took a pause during the interview because of course he did, in order to like draft a tweet by hand and hand it off hilarious. to his staff, which was a hilarious experience in order to witness um, live and in person. But the, man, the way that he cares about Twitter is unparalleled because his favorite activity would be to tweet and sit there and watch the cable networks respond live. Mm. He would love to sit there, watch his TV. This is the biggest TV I've ever seen, by the way, it's sitting in the Oval. And he would sit there and watch the Chiron change to whatever his Trump tweet was. He's he making understood. Them dance. Yeah, he understood yeah. He was making his ability dance. in order to make these people dance, in order to make these people uh, react to him. And that's what he understood. And it was his greatest superpower, right? So Trump, at the end of the day, his commodity is attention. And in his commodification of attention, how that's how he won the presidency, his manipulation of cable news networks and the billions of dollars in free advertising that he basically forced them to give him, I don't think there's any chance in hell because what's going to happen on Truth Social? Yeah, he'll truth or whatever. Compose truth, apparently, is how they uh, talk. That's it's so, so awkward. Awkward. <laughs> okay, cringe. I'm with us. I do so think it's bad. funny, though, that Getter and uh, Gab and all of these other free speech competitors, they're dead, basically, overnight. I mean, Elon yeah. essentially and destroyed. And they have to pretend like they're happy about right, it. Right. They're like, oh, this is great. <laughs> it's like, no, Elon basically just destroyed your entire raison d'etre. So uh, I think you're going to have a real problem. Well, going forward, yeah, I think that in general, that it's a good thing in order to watch this like cringe industrial complex get destroyed mm -hmm. of these, you know, so-called free speech or whatever platforms. Because at the end of the day, it was what we always said: the whole problem for ever, these alternatives is that network effects exist for a reason and are what make the company and the service valuable. The point of Twitter is that everybody, mostly, if you're engaging in elite conversation, is on it, so you get to engage with everyone. What's the point? of a platform if you can't own the libs when you're a conservative. The funniest part of conservative Twitter is dunking on liberals right. and probably vice versa. For I don't spend as much time on uh, lib Twitter, but I'm sure that that's what it looks like over there too. That's, the, that's what gets people going. So, you know, I think that Trump 
will just find no way in order to not join Twitter. I just yeah. don't see it. Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to agree with yeah. you. And even some of his aides expressed deep oh, really? skepticism yeah, I'm sure. yeah, that yeah. he'd be able to stay away. Apparently, the way he consumes Twitter now is people literally, like, print out tweets for him and bring them <laughs> to him, which is also hilarious and the most boomer thing I've yeah. ever heard in my entire life. Um, but... You know, ultimately, uh, again, there was a lot of panic among liberals about Trump being allowed back onto Twitter and what that might mean. Mm -hmm. And listen, you and I have both said it here. It's been nice not having him yes. in our lives every day and having to listen to his every, like, insane, idiotic, maniacal utterance. But ultimately, has it been good for you if you don't want Trump to return to the White no. House? No, it hasn't been good for you because— it has allowed people to forget just how obnoxious this man is on an every single day basis. That has been a gift to him. And actually, of all people, someone who recognized this and, and tweeted something about it was Joe Scarborough, mm -hmm. who said the same thing of like, you know, you should you should actually want people to have on display how terrible this guy is every single day and be reminded of how not fun it was having him in our lives and in the Oval Office um, during his time in the presidency. So... I think it's a good thing, I, even, you know, as annoying as it's going to be for us and having to, like, sort through what of, what of his tweets are worth covering and the majority of which we usually just ignore, it's going to be annoying. But ultimately, is it better to have someone who was the president of the United States and very likely to be the next president of the United States to more, have more access to the way that he's thinking about things so that we can all evaluate yes. it? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good thing. Ultimately, my view on all of this is I actually have respect for the American people. I think people can evaluate information. I think they can make up their minds. I think they can handle and process things, even things that are outrageous or even things that are ultimately offensive. And I think in a democracy, you have to be prepared to do those things. The minute that we lose faith in the idea that we're a nation of grownups who can, you know, live in civic life and handle conspiracy theories or inaccuracies or offensive commentary or whatever being thrown at us is the moment that we do start to slide towards authoritarianism and a police state. So that's why I ultimately think these issues matter a whole, whole lot to the future of the country. Yeah, I think that's really well said. Okay, the final thing that we'll get to here on Twitter. I just couldn't resist this. So Bezos is very upset. So many layers. Bezos, Bezos is mad because his atten the attention has been drawn away from him and he's been upstaged by Elon Musk once again. So he tweets this. Let's put this up there on the screen. Interesting question. Did the Chinese government just gain a little bit of leverage over the town square? He's responding to a tweet from Mike Forsyth. He's a very good reporter, actually. And he says, apropos of something, Tesla's second biggest market is China. Chinese battery makers are major suppliers for Tesla EVs. After 2009, when China banned Twitter, the government there had no leverage over the platform. That may have just changed. Now, here's the thing. I agree with Mike completely. As you know, Crystal, I did an entire monologue about the problem of Elon Musk's connections with the Chinese government, his clear subservience to the Chinese regime, and clearly allowing the Tesla supply chain to get entirely captured by the government if they so choose. I do think it's a serious problem. Now, is Jeff Bezos the guy to make that point? No. Absolutely not. He's doing this because he's upset that his purchase of the Washington Post has been somehow eclipsed. And as Glenn Greenwald pointed out, which I also had in the back of my mind when I responded to this, put this up there. Amazon has literally partnered with the Chinese propaganda arm. They removed negative reviews about a book by President Xi Jinping and disabled comments and made sure that only five-star reviews were proliferating on the platform. But beyond that, we both know this. 
If you talk to American small business owners who sell on the Amazon platform, they have a massive problem of Chinese counterfeit goods. Yeah. A huge problem of yeah. Chinese companies which go on Amazon, which steal IP or pretend to be an American brand, and then sell people crap products. And then those people think that they're getting a legitimate product from an American business, and then they leave a one-star review being like, this is garbage, this is not what I paid for. And Amazon sellers have complained for over a decade at this point that the CEO, Bezos, and the team at Amazon specifically allow it to happen because they just don't want to deal with it. Yeah. They don't want to deal with the consequences. They don't have proper enforcement mechanisms. So, you know, Bezos, just save, save your BS criticism. And this is what you mean about the whole, like, billionaires arguing with <laughs> each other. It's like, hey, maybe both of you were compromised right. by China. Exactly. And neither of you have a leg to stand on. And, oh, by the way, should I start making that point whenever it comes to Bezos' ownership of the Washington Post? Yes, I yeah, should. Actually, is that going to be well-received by the lib media who loved this tweet? No. This, I mean, this is, this is the whole thing, yeah. right? Someone tweeted, billionaire celeb deathmatch yeah, is apparently right. what Twitter's final form right. looks like. like <laughs> none of these billionaires are people for us to rest the hopes for our democracy on. Yes. And if you loved Bezos at the Post and you hate Elon Musk at Twitter, I would mm -hmm. ask you to evaluate the consistency of that principle. And if you are overjoyed and you think Elon Musk is the answer to our democracy and you rip Jeff Bezos' ownership of the Washington Post, I would also ask you to reevaluate how consistent your principles ultimately are on this, these things. Listen, one billionaire may give you a little bit more of what you want in this area. The country and the future of this democracy should not depend on the whims of any billionaire. I don't care if you like Trump or you hate Trump or you're socially liberal or you're conservative or you're pro-free speech or whatever. We should not be reliant on the thoughts, feelings, whims, and stupidity of the billionaire class, period, end of story. So this is, like, this tweet is exactly why <laughs> this whole thing sort of, like, makes me feel a little bit crazy because I just— um, you know, the the sense that you get of the country lining up behind their preferred billionaires and like going to bat yeah. for the billionaires that they think are ideologically aligned with them is an incredibly grim place to be. Absolutely. Bezos, cope and seethe, man. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Okay, uh, let's give you a little bit of update an update on what is going on here with House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy, very likely to be the next Speaker of the House, assuming Dems lose in the midterms, which seems all but certain. Okay, go ahead and put this New York Times report up on the screen. There's a new book out um, by Alex Burns and Jonathan Martin, two very good and very well-sourced reporters, about all kinds of things regarding the uh, 2020 election. And one of the things that they revealed was that on a phone call uh, with House Republicans, actually two separate phone calls with House Republicans, Kevin McCarthy, uh, you know, derided Trump for his actions on January 6th and even suggested that he should re resign. So here's a little bit of that report. They say on a phone call with several other top House Republicans on January 8th, so two days after the attack, Mr. McCarthy said Mr. Trump's conduct on January 6th had been, quote, atrocious and totally wrong. He faulted the president for, quote, inciting people to attack the Capitol, saying that Mr. Trump's remarks at a rally on the National Mall that day were not right by any shape or any form. On a call a couple days later, on January 10th, um, he got even more explicit. Liz Cheney asked him about a 25th Amendment mm -hmm. solution, to which he said, ah, it doesn't look like that's going to happen. And then she said, well, what about, do you think there's any chance that he would resign? 
McCarthy said he would tell Mr. Trump about the impeachment resolution. I think this will pass, and it would be my recommendation. You should resign. So this is what he's telling Liz Cheney and other top House Republicans is that, listen, I think I'm going to tell him to his face, or at least by phone, that he should resign because impeachment seems like it is headed towards him and likely to be successful. He goes on to say, what he did is unacceptable. Nobody can defend that, and nobody should defend it. We can't put up with that, Mr. McCarthy said, adding, he also, uh, can't they take away their Twitter accounts away too? So he also suggests that Twitter should be censoring um, House members who were going along with all of this as well, which is just kind of insult to injury. Of course, McCarthy, when he was um, given the chance to respond to all of this, his office was like, this is totally fake news and this is totally untrue. Mm Then the audio recording came out, and guess what? (laughs) It was not fake news, and it was not untrue. Let's take a listen to a little bit of that. Any chance, are you hearing that he might resign? Is there any reason to think that might happen? I've had a few discussions. My gut tells me no. Um, I'm seriously thinking of having that conversation with him tonight. I haven't talked to him in a couple days. Um... From what I know of him, I mean, you guys all know him too. Do you think he'd ever back away? But what what I think I'm going to do is I'm going to call him. My this, this is what I think. Um, no, it'll pass the House. I think there's a chance it'll pass the Senate even when he's gone. Um, and I think there's a lot of different ramifications for that. Now, I haven't had a discussion with the Dems that if he did resign, would it not happen? Now, this is one personal fear I have. Um, I do not want to get into any conversations about Pence pardoning anything like that. I mean, the only discussion I would have with him is that I think this will pass, and it would be my recommendation we should resign. It would wow. be my recommendation that you should resign. And very, his, very yeah. clear. His spokesman specifically said to the New York Times, quote, McCarthy never said he would call Trump to say that he should resign. So he said that verbatim. And then the tape came out. I just love this because it's like, dude, just own up to it. You're like, yeah, in the post-January 6th, I thought he should resign. And then after it was clear that the majority of Republicans were basically cool with everything and were not going to support impeachment, I changed my mind. But instead, he has to pretend like he's some rah-rah MAGA Trump warrior, which even the most MAGA people will tell you that Kevin McCarthy is Nobody obviously that. a but snake. You, I mean, it's interesting, too, yeah. how Trump responded, yeah. which is kind of clever. I mean, uh. Trump doesn't care what is going on in Kevin Mark- McCarthy's head or his heart. All he cares about is if he's going to be completely subservient right. and effectively cuck to him, which it is even more of a clear demonstration of that when you clearly thought initially, like, this was really bad and the president's to blame and he should resign. But then because you're too afraid to, you know, of it being uncomfortable for you politically, you just go with the flow. Like, that tells you everything you need to know if you're Trump about, yeah, this guy is never going to stand up to me ever. He's totally going to fall in line. So that's ultimately all he really cares about. And he said, Trump in an interview, I think it's all a big compliment, frankly. They realized they were wrong and then they supported me. (laughs) Uh, And the they there is both McCarthy and McConnell because they also had some more reporting about McConnell and we covered this at the time. Mm-hmm. You remember he made some noises about maybe he would go along with impeachment and maybe he would actually try to rally his caucus um, to vote with the Democrats who actually convict Trump in the Senate 
um, because of his role in inciting the events of January 6th. And then, I mean, he said it very plainly to his colleagues and advisors. He was like, look, I didn't get to this position of power by voting in a minority of my caucus. So once he saw the writing was on the wall, it was like, oh, well, I guess I'm not going to try. And that's that. And that was probably, you know, the biggest opening that Republicans who wanted to see Trump removed as the leader of the party, that was probably the biggest opening they had, the one chance they had to really sort of come at him and make sure he couldn't run for president anymore. And they saw what the writing on the wall with was the base, and they completely backed down. So the, the last piece of this that is interesting is McCarthy hadn't really responded since the, you know, they said, oh, no, he never said that. He never told members that Trump should resign or that he'd tell Trump he should resign. Then the audio comes out and he literally said exactly that. And so even Fox News on McCarthy's little field trip to the border decided to press him on the clear lie that he and his team are telling about what he had to say after January 6th. Let's take a listen to a Fox News reporter pressing Kevin McCarthy. I want to switch gears a little bit because you are looking to be speaker again if Republicans win. Uh, and to that point, you know what's out there. The New York Times has released audio of you where uh, days after January 6th, you're on a call with House Republican leadership, and you're heard on that audio saying that you've, quote, had enough with President Trump and that you would tell him to his face it would be your belief that he should resign. Do you still stand by those comments? Look, I never told the president to resign. It was a conversation that we had about scenarios going forward. But that's not really what critical happened 15 months ago. What's happening is what's happening on this border right now. You had said the New York Times reporting on it was, quote, false and wrong. Then the tape came out. Did you lie? No, because what was brought to me is said that I called the president to say that, um, that uh, to resign. I never called the president to say resign. He and I have a very good relationship as we go through. But what really needs to happen here is we're watching what's happening in this country, a border that's not secure, inflation continuing to rise every day, streets that are not safe. Um, parents that are being attacked by the attorney general saying that uh, somehow they're terrorists because they want to go to school board meetings. That all changes when Republicans take the majority. Oh, man, come Dude, on. He's, he's so what slimy. A pivot. I mean, and you pointed out the right thing, which yeah. is that the spokesman specifically said yeah. he never told members yes. that Trump should resign. Right. And you see what McCarthy tries to do there of saying, like, oh, I never told Trump that he should right. resign. Well, we didn't say that. Yeah, nobody we, asked. Nobody, nobody said that. Nobody said did that. that. They said you told members you would tell Trump you should resign. But ultimately, he was too big of a coward to actually say those words to yes. Trump. So that may be true that he never told Trump to resign, but that was never what the question was. So Ugh. typical sleazy, lying, slippery politician, and he's not even good at it. Yeah, I know. He really is terrible. Trump would have been like, yeah, I said it. Or, or, or he would have just come in like, I never said it. It was the perfect phone call. The perfect <laughs> call that I ever had. With right. Like yeah. He would either just acknowledge it outright right. and, or he would just like blatantly lie, not try to find this. I like, said it. And then I, I here, here's an easier answer. I said it. And then I I realized this was all an attack by the lamestream Democrats. Boom. I just answered the there question. There you go. Kevin. I mean, come on, dude. It's, just, it's so pathetic the way these people It really are. is embarrassing. And yeah, you watch that and you're like, I can't believe that that man is probably going to be Speaker of the House. Third in line, two heartbeats away from some, the president. This is some meritocracy we have here, guys. <laughs> Not sending country. their best and brightest. Yeah. I mean, it really is sad. Like, I've said it a million times. The Democrats deserve to lose, but these people certainly do not deserve to win. And we're probably, I know there's a lot of... Um, GOP triumphalism, rightly, right now, about, like, we're going to take back power, which I'm just almost certain mm -hmm. that they're going to. They're very likely to win the presidency back in 2024 as well. But I think the era of, you know, the 
the political parties sort of shifting power back and forth is just going to continue. Yes. And in fact, there was a new uh, poll that show that 58% of Americans, which is a very high number historically, have said they're open to an independent candidate mm -hmm. if the choices are Trump or Biden. Um, no one is happy with these choices, just like what happened in France where people were like, not Macron or Le Pen. I think there's a lot of sentiment around that too of like, you know, we're not happy with the Democrats, but I guess we're gonna, you know, go with these guys, but nobody's too excited about what they have to offer either. Absolutely. Okay, let's move on. This is a very important uh, report here. Let's put it up there on the screen, which is, and interestingly enough, it says how U.S.-Saudi relations reached the breaking point mm, as to why we named this show what it is. What they point to here is that Saudi Prince MBS confronted Jake Sherman, the national security advisor of the United States, and began yelling at him. And what's very important in this report is that Saudi Prince MBS basically said, we will never speak about this again. Now, he was so, so upset about Mr. Sullivan that he shouted at him and basically said that he would be banishing him from the room and that the U.S. could forget about its request to boost oil production. So that is the significant part of all of this, which is that whenever, and also I love the description, he was wearing shorts yeah, at his which seaside I palace. I already felt was very disrespectful. Oh, of course. Right? This is how they, this is how they play. This right? is they like an alpha move. Like, can, I don't even have to get dressed up for you. I'm right. just going to uh -huh. be here relaxing in my shorts. I have heard stories about MBS and about the way that he would treat U.S. diplomats. And like, he would specifically make them come on his yacht or whatever in the south of France in order to show his fake Mona Lisa or his fake Leonardo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, like, try and, and pull all of these uh, meetings. That's another story for another time. But I think that the important part is that shouting at him and specifically tying any criticism on the Jamal Khashoggi killing to U.S. oil production just shows the Saudis demand total subservience from the Americans. We are supposed to do anything that they want. Oh, they want our weapons? Give it to them. Don't say a damn thing about Yemen. If you talk about Yemen, you're done. This is one of those things which is an absolute red line for them. Oh, you want to talk about Jamal Khashoggi? Oh, you're it's over. We are never going to have this discussion and you can forget about it. And it's a problem because they have the basically one of the only OPEC nations that are able in order to immediately spin up production. Because we've talked about here, America is a major, you know, uh, oil producing nation in its own right. But our infrastructure is not such that it would take six to nine months in order to make sure that we'd want to. The Saudis could pump more tomorrow. Well, they now, have con complete control over yes, the industry. And they have total control over the industry. And they've even said, they're like, oh yeah, we could do it. Well, we're not going to. They've agreed to a, quote, modest increase. And you can just see the economic effect that this is having on all Americans. Let's put this up there. I had this cut from the AAA gas price national average. I mean, the national average of gas as we cut this, was $4.12 a gallon. That's a lot of money. Okay, it's not $4.50, $4.30 like it was uh, a couple of months ago. So that, yeah, the, the all-time high recorded was $4.33 a gallon, which was last month. But I mean, it's only dropped by 20 cents. That's still an enormous tax on the average American. In California, Crystal, the average price is $5.68 a gallon. I mean, the lowest prices are in the 370s, 360s in the South and in the Southwest. But here also in the DMV, I get lucky if I get $4.12 a gallon, yeah. which is the national average. I mean, that is 
an immense amount of money that Americans are outlaying every week uh, to these oil companies and because right. specifically of the Saudis. Yeah, although the truth truth is at this point, it has there was a time when it had a lot to do with the Saudis yeah. um, withholding production and basically serving, you know, as Russian, that's what the Russians yeah. want them to do. And right. there were all these little like diplomatic slights of the White House was trying to line up a phone call with mm-hmm. MBS. They kept pushing him off. Ultimately, they cancel. And then the very next day, he's taking a call with Putin. Yes. So there's all kinds of that kind of stuff that's ultimately going on here. But, you know, oil prices per barrel have dropped a lot, mm-hmm. um, not thanks to anything that Biden or anyone else has done, but because of the new lockdowns in China, yep, you know, exactly. curbing demand significantly. Um, and as we covered here before on this show, the sad fact of the matter is that when um, oil prices by the barrel go up, gas prices skyrocket immediately. But when they go down again, it takes a long time yes. for them to come back down because all of the like um, gas station operators are trying to make what they can um, and benefit from the distance between what they're paying for uh, oil and what they can charge you at the pump. So. I just want to be clear, there's like a complex picture of why gas prices continue to be high right now. But the more important point here about the Saudis is, listen, I want to see our country have good relations around the world, period, even with regimes that I don't particularly care for. And that definitely includes the Saudi regime, which has been extraordinarily nefarious, which, you know, the war in Yemen has been a a moral atrocity that we have been completely complicit in. However, uh, in the While in the micro, it has caused some pain at the pump for American consumers that I do not want to diminish. In the macro, us having a more arm's length distance from Saudi Arabia is a good thing. And, you know, it's interesting what it happened over because you had um, progressives who were kind of out on their own making the case. And some other civil libertarians who I want to give credit to. Exactly. um, Who were kind of out on their own with regards to the Yemen war and trying to take a stand there. And then it was once uh, the Jamal Khashoggi killing happened, that really started to galvanize public opinion and bipartisan sentiment, including with mainstream Democrats, against the Saudi regime. And that really did serve as a kind of a tipping point. So it's it's revealing here that it was those comments from Jake Sullivan mm-hmm. bringing up Khashoggi that causes MBS to totally freak out and scream at him um, because, even, you know, it's look, it was horrific what they did to Khashoggi. But that's only one of many abuses that we should be concerned about. Yeah, they do it from, every day from the Saudi government. Yeah. Um, but that was the thing that really sort of turned American public opinion and elite political opinion um, and caused them to question what this relationship with Saudi was ultimately like. So I do think that that was kind of a pivot point in this relationship. Yeah, and we shouldn't uh, dismiss this either. Let's put this up there uh, from Bloomberg. Rising oil prices, I just, this is just from yesterday, they are a boon to the Saudi economy. I mean, they are making bank in a way that they have not made in a long time. The IMF said its estimate for the country's economic growth is going up by three percentage points to 7.6%. That's China-level growth for a country that produces and does nothing but (laughs) pump oil. That's a pretty amazing, uh, uh, yeah, despite all of their propaganda about all their other fake business that they have, they're an oil country and they'll continue to be an oil country until the day that it runs out. And the reason it matters is because they don't have a whole lot of incentive here. The only reason that they would do so is through some sort of diplomatic uh, diplomatic agreement with the United States in order to drop oil. And they know that they have us over a barrel. And what's worse is that they have great relationships with Jared Kushner yeah. because they are banking that a return from the Kushner and Trump regime would make it so that 
it would be great for them. They're yeah, like, this is the real foreign interference that people should be talking 100%, about. Yeah. Ken Klippenstein's been saying that yeah. for a while too, by the way. This is absolutely foreign interference. Same thing whenever China would do the, you know, spot, they would try and raise spot prices uh, for agricultural goods in the Midwest ahead of the election because mm. they were upset about tariffs. These are the types of foreign interference with the country the media never wants to actually talk about, but has very real political ramifications here in the U.S. We should all just be aware. Look, like no matter how what you think, I don't want to be screwed with by the people who are probably more responsible for 9-11 than anybody but mm-hmm. Osama bin Laden. And, you know, it's disgusting that we've been kissing their ass for the last 20 years and allowing wow. all of this Saudi cash swimming around in our country. Even the yeah. Twitter deal, we talked about that with Elon going against the uh, the Kingdom Holding Company. That's I mean, right. by the way, I'm aware that the Kingdom Holding Company is not actually tied to the kingdom, but if you think that that prince isn't directly subject to the whims of MBS, given that he was literally imprisoned by MBS, then you're an idiot. And I just think that we should not allow these Saudi royal family members or rich people to throw any weight around in this country whatsoever. And this ties to you know my conversations around nuclear and, and all of that and why exactly that's necessary. But you can just look at this and it's really gross that they are printing money hand over fist. They're screwing with us and we continue to sell them weapons and give them preferential treatment in the diplomatic world. They don't deserve it. Screw them. Yeah. That's what we should say. That's a part of the Biden administration that's been really pathetic is yeah. even after some of these you know displays of contempt they still are doing what they want them to do, thinking that like, oh, well, maybe if we appease them a little bit more and give them what they want, then they'll lessen their hostile posture. This Wall Street Journal report that we started this block with admits that the administration, they aren't even bothering to ask anymore for them to lift production because they've just given up on it ultimately being a possibility. That's how, um, you know, that's how intransigent ultimately and arrogant I think the Saudi regime is at this point. Mm Speaking of arrogance, let's talk about Kamala Harris. Okay. Um, uh, This is another Alex Thompson uh, find. We have a love relying on the reporting in this new book a lot, uh, this this show. So go ahead and put this first piece up on the screen, his tweet. So apparently, as Kamala Harris was trying to uh, regain her footing within the administration uh, serving as vice president, the, some of the people beyond her inner circle that she ca- sought counsel from include Rahm Emanuel, yep. now Biden's ambassador to Japan, gross, and MSNBC's Joe Scarborough. <laughs> um, there are some other details here in this piece that he links to. Um, it says that the book details Vice President Kamala Harris's, quote, unsettled place in the administration as other Democrats are already eyeing the 2024 race if Biden declines to run. They talk specifically about Pete Buttigieg, mm-hmm. uh, who they describe as a favorite of wealthy donors who wanted an alternative to Harris for 2024 or beyond, and several major gover- governors who had battled Trump, including Phil Murphy. Is that uh, New Jersey? Yeah, New Jersey. Governor. The guy who just barely got reelected mm-hmm. in New Jersey. So that dude. J.B. Pritzker, who's like billionaire Chicago guy, and Roy Cooper, who no one has ever heard of, but is the governor of North Carolina. They are also apparently making the rounds of Democratic contributors. So very likely or very possible, they're sort of, you know, positioning themselves to make the case that they should be the Democratic nominee if Biden ultimately doesn't run. And then they talk about how Harris is looking for advice beyond her inner circle and going for the, you know, outsiders council of Rahm Emanuel and Joe Scarborough, which is just pretty pathetic. Yeah, I just, you know, it's just interesting to think in the context of how much she's melting down and she reaches for the worst possible advice. This is why I've said, I mean, the thing I'm probably most scared of is Joe Biden dying before his term is up because 
I cannot imagine a world where this woman is president. She has She's terrible so judgment. Look at the people who she listens to. Joe Scarborough and Rahm Emanuel. If you, you know, look, I have a lot of criticisms of the Biden administration in Ukraine. We are going to be in a full-blown nuclear war if that woman ever becomes, uh, sits in the Oval Office. And even the way that she runs her staff is an embarrassment. Put this up there, which is just now. Her chief of staff is leaving the administration, and reportedly some of the stuff that she had asked her chief to do is completely insane. I mean, she dispatched a member of her staff to the uh, to the White House because she was upset, we talked about this before, that people were not standing whenever she entered the room because she's the vice president, people who were in the president's staff. And the president's staff, like Ron Klain and them, were like, are you seriously bugging me with this shit when we have to deal with vaccine distribution? Right. This was like January of 2020 or 2021, right when they uh, come into the office. It's the first 100 days. This is what and you're worried, worried about? And about her magazine picture wasn't the yeah, one the that she Vogue wanted. Yeah, the Vogue magazine picture. <laughs> Once again, and the White House was like, we don't but have time to worry about your BS, Kamala. I mean, she's a complete egomaniac. And she, she doesn't have any North Star either. Right. I mean, it just is very clear. And this was this has been clear, so which is why it's like, why did you ever pick her in the first place? You kind of get what you deserve. But um, she has no guiding principles. It's just all about trying to figure out what what the right answer is. You know, what is it that the press wants to hear, the media wants to hear, the liberals want to hear, or, you know, what's going to bet. I mean, it's really all comes back to what is going to be the most beneficial posture for me personally. Mm -hmm. And that's just, first of all, it's no way to earn respect from anyone, um, not from the public, certainly, but not even from the people who are working with you in this administration. And it's going to leave you adrift buffeted around looking for advice from the likes of, you know, Joe Scarborough and right. <laughs> Rahm Emanuel. Rahm Emanuel is one of the most odious people to ever operate in Washington and was incredibly damaging ultimately to the Democratic Party. So there is another piece of this that is kind of um, interesting. Well, first of all, with regard to Flournoy, uh, the yeah. chief of staff, this is far from the first. I mean, she's had many high-profile yes. departures from her team at this point. This is another consistent theme throughout Kamala's career is that her staffs are always unsettled, unhappy, um, riven by infighting and factionalism. And, right. you know, somebody called it like every day is kind of managed chaos. Um, there was some reporting before this happened that some staff were actually blaming Flournoy mm -hmm. for some of the problems in the office that she's super insular, that she was very, I guess, gruff and uh, abrasive and wasn't listening to the ideas of everybody on the team. I have no idea whether that's the case or not, but I think it becomes very clear when you have these same problems in every organization that Kamala Harris has run. Certainly some of it comes back to the top, the person who was running the show, who was picking the staff, who was setting the tone and the culture for the whole team. Um, the last piece of this that is interesting is we're, we kind of knew this a little bit, but we're getting some more details about Joe Biden's wife, Jill, did not want Kamala Harris on the ticket whatsoever. Let's go ahead and put this insider report up there on the screen. She reportedly said, there are millions of people in the United States. Why do we have to choose the one who attacked Joe? Uh, um, she had also previously, I don't know if you remember this had come out uh, before, told supporters on a conference call that Harris should go F herself right. for attacking right. her husband. So ultimately, her concern was less about um, you know, politics. Kamala's yeah, politics or capabilities or anything, but she's just sticking up for her family and for her husband um, in what was... A, 
fair attack on Joe, but also was clearly very premeditated and not backed by any principle because you'll remember after Kamala did her whole, like, that little girl was me, anti, you know, against Biden's position on busing. When she was pressed on it, it turned out she had the same position as him on busing. So it was clearly very disingenuous, like, very so the scripted. The made, remember that? The Instagram post, the t-shirts made, all of that. A very scripted and premeditated attack on him. But I also think it's interesting because I was thinking back, Sagar, to... Um, Remember, Jill Biden at the DNC, she gave one of the better speeches, one of the more relatable um, speeches that really sort of, you know, touched on issues that people, I think, genuinely cared about. She delivered in a very authentic way. And so perhaps they should be listening to Jill, who seems to have a little bit more of a finger on the pulse outside of the White House and insular D.C. circles than on some of the other folks on their team, in particular, Apparently, the person who really made the case for Harris Harris was Ron Klain, oh my God. who was hailed as this like genius and a progressive ally and all of this. He told um, Jill that choosing Harris will show people that you are magnanimous and forgiving. I guess he said that to Joe. And it will show the country just what a unifying leader you can be, which is not, I mean. Yeah, that worked out really Right, well. and ultimately right. like, you should choose a vice president because you're, you think they're up to the job of being right. president because they have a, a you know shared vision and values for the country and you think they're like ready to step up to the plate instead of some vague idea of like, oh, this will show that you're magnanimous. So anyway, it hasn't worked out that well. Yeah, I guess that's what I'll it's say. very strange. Uh, it just shows ridiculous kind of thinking on their part. And, you know, and just in general with her, she's such a disaster. And I also blame Biden on this part. I mean, dude, you're 80 years old. Like, you should have picked somebody if you thought you were going to win, who you really thought was up to the job. And we have no evidence to point to that. And I think that all you put all these things together, staff turmoil, relying on bad advice like Scarborough in order to guide your decision-making, having no you know, real principles or North Star. She would be one of the worst presidents to ever hold. It would be Andrew Johnson territory uh, if she assumed the office. So it's terrifying in order to see how she conducts herself and a lot of the behind the scenes. Right. Her. Well, because, listen, you all know we got all kinds of issues yeah. with Joe Biden. But when it came to Afghanistan, and I think also on certain issues when it's come to Ukraine, he has resisted the bullying right. and the leaks against him and all of the tools and the tricks that the deep state uses to try to compel you in a more hawkish direction. Mm -hmm. Very clearly on Afghanistan, that is the case. That's only possible if you actually have like a principle, some sort of belief that you're willing to commit to. And that's why someone like Kamala Harris in that position is ultimately very dangerous. And we saw this with Trump too. Regardless of whatever he said and told people his values and principles were, he doesn't really care. And that made him very susceptible to manipulation from the people who are around him who were either ideological or self-interested actors or whatever the deep state ultimately wanted him to do. And so that's why someone who is completely rudderless like Kamala or like Mayor Pete and these other people, that's why they ultimately are so dangerous because they'll just be buffeted by the winds of these really malicious, nefarious, self-interested actors here in D.C. And that's the worst possible place you can end up in. Yeah, exactly right. Okay, guys, we do have some good news that we wanted to get to you today. Stephen Donziger. 
who has been now for years under house arrest for the crime of standing up for the indigenous people of Ecuador against the giant oil company of Chevron. He has finally at long last been released. Let's put this tweet up on the screen. This happened yesterday. Makes me so happy to see him out there on the street. Lovely picture of him there. Uh, holding up his release papers. He says, breaking, it is over. Just left with release papers in hand. Completely unjust that I spent even one day in this Kafka-esque situation, not looking back onward. And uh, I think he sums it up perfectly well right there. Um, just so everybody, you know, if, if you guys haven't been following this case really close, it really does matter and expose the way that Chevron was able to use their money and influence um, in the judiciary to effectively, like, really criminalize this man and uh, villainize him for just actually winning a court case against them for their poisoning of indigenous Ecuadorial lands. Um, so Donziger is starting a substack, and he wrote a little bit about his experience. And I just want to read this so people have kind of the, the general gist of what happened here. He says that Chevron and this judge that was kind of allied with them coordinated to charge me with criminal contempt of court and lock me up for almost three years at home and in prison. Um, he was actually sent to a federal prison for a time after an unprecedented criminal prosecution by a private Chevron law firm. Chevron and that judge claimed I committed a crime by appealing a civil discovery order that I turn over my computer and cell phone to Chevron. These devices contained reams of confidential attorney-client protected communication that I was ethically obligated to protect. Such an order violating the attorney-client privilege in a civil discovery context was unprecedented. Lawyers in rule of law countries do not share their confidential case files with opposing counsel. He goes on to say it was subterfuge designed by Chevron and the judge to force me to choose between complying with my ethical duties to my clients or complying with a court order under threat of contempt. I am, and I think this is really important to remember, the first lawyer in U.S. history ever charged with a crime for appealing a civil discovery order. The case seemed orchestrated to retaliate against me for helping win the pollution judgment against Chevron in Ecuador. The federal prosecutor in New York refused to accept Kaplan's charges. So that's sort of the um, meat of what happened to him ultimately. It is wonderful to see him free. It is insane that he ever spent a single day under house arrest or in prison. And I want to say that, you know, I hope you all support him or consider supporting him as he moves into his new chapter. Um, he wants to get back to his roots of journalism, actually, mm -hmm. which is something that I think, you know, he certainly has the courage and the the uh, perseverance and the dogged determination and the completely unbought and un unbossed mentality to be very effective at. He started started a Substack, so we'll put the link in the description. And in addition, um, we announced yesterday we have a new partnership with Status Coup and Jordan Cheriton, who's going to be providing with us with exclusive footage. Yesterday, we showed you some of his exclusive footage interviews with workers at Amazon. Today, we have some footage for you from Jordan Cheriton on the ground at a block party to celebrate Stephen Donziger's release. Let's take a look at that. Uh, Stephen Donziger, a free man. That's my first question. I mean, basic, how do you feel? I feel exhilarated. I mean, I just can't believe it's over, at least this phase. Um, you know, it's a mixture of excitement, frankly, exhaustion. I've been up, like, in the middle of the night for several nights running, mostly because the prison system just kept calling me, you know, and, and making me do these check-ins from home that are just insane. So um, I'm glad I don't have to deal with those phone calls anymore. I'm glad to be trying to get my life back. Um, you know, freedom is something I think I took for granted, frankly, before this happened. Like, you don't realize 
you just sort of built into your life until it's taken away. So happy to at least have most of my freedom back. I'm not completely out of the woods with these legal assaults they're targeting me with, but I'm really, really happy today. And I really couldn't have done it without all the support. I think that's important because you're free, but you've been disbarred, nearly bankrupted, your reputation tarnished. So it's not like it's, you know, rainbows and sunshine. Exactly. Look, I, I, one thing I'll say is I think Chevron's strategy to use this to crush me failed. I think I'm stronger than ever. I mean, the support we have is just has grown exponentially in the last year or two because they overreached and locked up a human rights lawyer in the United States of America. So, you know, while I do face certain challenges, I also have all sorts of other possibilities that come out of it. And I think overall, um, their strategy failed. I mean, I'm as strong as ever. I'm stronger, actually, and I'm energized by the whole experience. And I'm going to keep fighting for the people of Ecuador, fighting for human rights generally. And I, I really am excited about the future. And lastly, you know, I, I've been covering a lot of doom and gloom lately yeah. the last couple of years, but covering the Amazon victory. Uh, I mean, obviously, you had to face 993 days <laughs> of in, unjust detention, but I feel like there's a different energy right now, yeah. just in mo different movements and organizing. Well, Can you talk about that? Yeah, I think it's important to understand that all liberation struggles are connected. And what Chris Smalls is doing, winning the union vote in Amazon, which, by the way, is just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, there, there's going to be a hundred of these votes over the next two, three years, in my opinion. So he's reshaping the American labor movement. I think through the Ecuador case, I'd like to think we're reshaping the paradigm of how you can achieve environmental justice against the major polluters of the world. You know, so when we met, like we had a lot in common just talking about our different struggles. They're very connected. It's all connected, isn't it? So yeah, I do think there's new energy in the air. I think people really feel the possibility. I think, you know, I think the United States has so many problems and they've become so deep, you know, inequality of income, lack of opportunity, lack of a health care plan. And people realize it doesn't have to be this way. These are the result of policy choices made by politicians who are mostly bought by the corporate world, you know. So we can change that. And it's up to us to change that. And I think the energy in the air here tonight is an example of that. Go get really drunk on good champagne. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks a lot. Thanks Absolutely. for coming. Great interview and, and just great to hear from him and yep. see him so incredibly happy after being locked in his house for so many years. He has a young teenage son. I mean, it really was horrific what they did to him. But one of the best things, Sagar, that I saw yesterday mm -hmm. at that block party is Chris Smalls was there okay. and spoke as well. Yeah. And here's two men who, you know, corporate America tried to demonize, tried to destroy ultimately, and it only made them um, more courageous and greater sort of moral leaders. So to see the two of them together and clearly sharing that bond was also really extraordinary and very inspiring. No, yeah, and I mean, what happened to him is objectively crazy, especially when, and whenever I would talk to him, I just said, I can't believe you're the first person in U.S. history, you know, for a lawyer in order to be held in contempt of court and the yes. whole private prosecution. I mean, the details of this are literally insane. Yes. I know it may seem a little bit distant, but we have this tweet. Let's put this up there. Uh, Steven's starting a Substack now. Uh, we'll put a link down there in the description that all of you guys can go and subscribe to if you're interested, because as he said, you know, now he's free and now he's got a fight for redemption. So yeah, it's a, no, still a long road. Yeah, he's got to make a living now. So, I mean, he, they, they came after his uh, yeah, legal, uh, his law license right. and disbarred him. And, you know, the legal costs were extraordinarily onerous. So, um, and, and regardless, even, you know, putting all of that aside, he has a very important and very courageous voice. So I'm pleased to support him and I hope you'll consider doing the same. Absolutely.
All right, Sagar, what are you looking at? It's been nearly a week now since Taylor Lorenz in the Washington Post revealed the identity of the person behind the popular Twitter account Libs of TikTok, which sparked a fierce debate online as to the ethics of the decision. Was it really appropriate for Jeff Bezos' multi-billion dollar reporting resources to be used by activist journalist Taylor Lorenz to unveil the identity of a private citizen who at the end of the day is just reposting videos with an editorial bent? Now, I have a somewhat nuanced take that I want to flesh out with all of you. First of all, this, which may be unpopular with my right-wing listeners. I actually think Libs of TikTok did reach the threshold of a public figure. She unquestionably is one of the most important conservative activists in the entire country and is probably more responsible than any one person for the passage of the recent Florida law banning sexual ideology being taught to children between kindergarten and third grade. And as I wrote in reaction, the real story is, to me, is how this person came out of nowhere to such prominence. Why does the ideology resonate so much with the American and Floridian public? You can disagree if you would like, but the recent important question to ask is the content you don't like is why is this doing well? Not to try and take it down. It's in that vein that Lorenz acted. Lorenz, of course, is the famous journalist who collapsed into tears on national TV because of online harassment. And yet, merely a week after the spectacle, she went out of her way to reveal the identity of the Libs of TikTok account, in which she linked to a private real estate license of the owner, explicitly attempting to dox her. She visited the house of a relative of the owner and then, quote, quoted numerous people who paint her as a hate mongerer online. That's just the story. There was zero discussion. Why is this stuff resonating in the first place? Almost immediately, the backlash was happening. And it's in their response to the backlash where the gaslighting is reaching new heights that I did not even think possible by these liars. First and foremost, the Washington Post came to Lorenz's defense, saying she is an accomplished and professional journalist. Lol to that. Adding, though, quote, we did not publish or link to any details of her personal life. They added this, this specifically to hit back at the doxing allegations. But as the Washington Post knows, the internet never forgets. Archived versions of the story show that the Post actually did link to that real estate license for the owner of the account and only deleted it immediately upon public backlash. They did not mention that at all, and it's a direct lie. That was the initial defense. But one thing that we know about Lorenz is she really just cannot help herself. So on Sunday, she appeared on Brian Stelter's failing CNN program, Reliable Sources, to defend her reporting, lying again about doxing, but also dropping another revealing comment. Let's take a listen. So here's the next one. The conservative supporters of this account said, you were doxing the person, you're doxing them. So can you tell us how you actually define doxing and, and the difference between doxing and real reporting? Yeah, of course. Um, well, the word doxing has been so devalued and it just kind of is a buzzword now in the right-wing media. Um, doxing means revealing highly, highly personal non-public information with the goal of harassment or sort of destroying someone's life. We absolutely did not reveal any personal information about this woman at all. And I think it's incredibly important, you know, as someone that covers the influencer industry to know who is exerting influence in, in this Way. I mean, for all we knew, this could have been a foreign actor, right? Or someone we just didn't know. And so I thought, hey, look, this account has massive power, massive influence. This woman is basically. Hmm. A foreign actor. 
Interesting language, and actually worth parsing. As David Sachs points out in response, the excuse to investigate libs of TikTok is that she might be a foreign actor, but the excuse for not reporting on the Hunter Biden laptop story or the Hillary Clinton emails is that they could be foreign disinformation. So which is it? Foreign actors are worth reporting on when they're dissident to the cultural regime, but not when they challenge the cultural regime. Obviously, these things all crumble in their inconsistency. If they were concerned, the account being run by a foreign actor, they could have investigated and just said, okay, we confirm it is not a foreign actor. The final point, though, that I'll make here is about the death of journalism, with a take that I borrow from Matthew Iglesias, which is this. Look, if Taylor Lorenz wants to be a cringe columnist where she expresses her opinions to a bunch of woke libs who read the Washington Post, that is actually fine. It's a free country. But it is obvious when you read her story that she hates libs of TikTok and thinks that it's bad. Fine, just express that opinion. The real problem is that the journalism you see today is just thinly veiled opinion columns disguised as news stories. She has to dress up her fake doxing campaign and opinion as a quote unquote reporting. So just say that you hate her and you're a woke lib. Everybody knows that already. The rise of Lorenz herself is a real story behind the death of journalism. I cannot tell you how many people I know who work inside these major media companies who privately tell me she is unhinged and unprofessional, but they all are either cowed by her or even come to her defense because they are terrified themselves of being branded as anti-trans, anti-woke, or right-wing. She is holding much of professional journalism hostage in the same way that many wokesters are in the same major corporations and media companies that are today. The death of that industry has wide-ranging implications. As we see in the fusion of so-called journalism to just becoming opinion reporting, in this, we find ourselves in a real bind. We all have to parse individual news articles. Are they true? Are they not? Who wrote it? Not really being able to rely on any more one organization for facts. That is what we're trying to fix here. But it takes a lot of money and time and major institutions that have been charged with the trust of the American public are collapsing at the same time. More importantly, what we see from the Taylor Lorenz saga is that this is a dangerous time for anyone who is a dissident against the cultural regime. Not only will they dox you and reveal your public information, but if you fight back, they will use their crocodile tears on national TV to say you are harassing them and then brand you everything under the sun. They preserve the, they want, and to preserve the monopoly on the right to dox. Now, the best way you can fight back is to replace them. That's why Crystal and I are investing inordinate amounts of resources as we approach our one-year anniversary to try to build a new mainstream. And as they destroy their trust amongst the public, somebody has to step up. It can't just be us. It really does have to be everybody because you have to turn them out, turn them off, and make them pay in the only way that matters, which is not paying attention to them in the way that they want. I think that, you know, the Iglesias part of this was the best point, which is that- And if you want to hear my reaction to Sagar's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. All right, Crystal, what are you taking a look at? Well, guys- Senator Bernie Sanders is 80 years old. He has served in federal office for longer than Sagar has been alive. In his last <laughs> presidential campaign, he suffered a heart attack, although it must be said he bounced back from it in a pretty astonishing way. And reportedly, he is considering running for president again. Here is the Washington Post with that scoop. Sanders has not ruled out another run for president if Biden does not. In it, they explain that Bernie's former campaign manager, Faz Shakir, sent out a memo to all of the candidates Bernie has endorsed with guidance on how to respond to any attacks that they receive about Bernie's endorsement. Included in that guidance was this line, quote, 
In the event of an open 2024 Democratic presidential primary, Senator Sanders has not ruled out another run for president, so we advise that you answer any questions about 2024 with that in mind. So what should we make of this? First of all, let me be clear. For me personally, if my choices are Biden, Trump, or Bernie, none of whom are spring chickens, I might add, it is not even a little bit of a hard choice. I would vote for Bernie's mummified corpse over either Biden or Trump. (laughs) What's more, the fact that he would only consider running if Biden takes a pass or doesn't make it to the starting line, that maybe makes the whole flirtation kind of a moot point. Biden reportedly already told Obama that he is planning on running again, and assuming he is able, I do buy it. Demolites know that Kamala is even more of a disaster than Joe Biden, and they would do a lot to avoid anything with even a whiff of an actual democratic process like an open primary would be, so I fully expect them to suck it up and stick with Joe if that is at all possible. But I still think it's worth reflecting on what it means that a man who should, by all rights, be able to enjoy his grandbabies and to sit back and reflect on the profound mark he's left on American politics still feels that there may be no other real alternative than for him to give it a third try. Bernie cracking the door open really lays bare the fact that there is no obvious successor to carry the banner of a populist universalist left politics. And guys, a look around the halls of Congress kind of proves the point. In the Senate, Probably the next closest to Bernie ideologically is Elizabeth Warren, but her initial populist appeal has long faded into a bloodless technocratic approach uncomfortable with challenging political power. Her presidential primary campaign quickly slid into hollow identitarianism and suffered from serious political missteps, like, for example, the whole DNA test situation, not to mention her seeming lack of candor when it came to Medicare for all and to Joe Biden's corruption. Warren's appeal only works with upscale wine track voters who are perfectly comfortable with a wide range of standard issue Democratic candidates. Now, if ever there was any doubt, Warren's decision to lie about Bernie being a secret sexist sealed her fate. Elizabeth Warren will not be Bernie Sanders' successor. In the House, you've, of course, got the squad, a group of youngish members who have largely adopted the faddish way of approaching politics that is ascendant among the young left. Whereas Bernie's politics and rhetorical frame are pitched towards mainstream acceptance, crafted as they were during the time of mass communications and broadly shared American culture, and honed in Vermont at a time when the state was actually really conservative and staunchly Republican. AOC and co, they've responded to Twitter market incentives that push them towards the specialized and towards the niche. Those incentives mean that edginess is rewarded rather than the ability to generate broad support. The result is a tendency to lean into slogans that are seemingly designed to register the highest shock value but garner the least possible actual support, and a similar tendency to focus on issues that are the most hotly contested and the most divisive rather than those where, again, the left enjoys some broad support. Being a niche player, it's not without power. It can lead to holding a large amount of sway with a group of fervent supporters. And with our politics being as filled with apathy as it currently is, sometimes you only need a committed minority to accomplish big things. But being a niche player is not going to win you a national election. That's why even now, after all the smears of Bernie from the left and from the right and all the fear-mongering about socialism, Bernie still outperforms just about everybody in presidential primary polling in the Democratic Party. A recent Harris X poll had him polling above everyone in a theoretical Democratic primary save for the sitting president and sitting vice president. A YouGov poll from January had him second only to Biden. And Bernie consistently beats his closest ideological allies like Warren and AOC in spite of his elder status and the fact that across eight years and two tries, he was not able to get the job done. And 
Guys, I do think that's worth mentioning too, especially against Joe Biden. Bernie was not ultimately willing to speak the hard truths that were needed to actually win. He landed respectful jabs on some policy issues. But when it came to specifically detailing how campaign cash had led Biden to a career currying favor with the financial services industry, not to mention the familial lapses in integrity that have only become more of a problem for Joe Biden, Bernie just wasn't willing to go there. So while there are many things to admire about Bernie Sanders and to aspire to in his vision for the country, in the end, he did not have the killer instinct to close the deal. The fact that he ruled out running in a primary against Biden directly kind of says it all about just how far he will go to challenge this current iteration of the Dem powers that be. But let me close with this hopeful note. Heroes and opportunities can arise out of nowhere to meet the moment. Just think about Chris Smalls being reluctantly forced into being the face of the Amazon labor union effort and becoming the revolutionary that the nation's workers needed. Think about Bernie himself jumping into what appeared to be a Hillary Clinton coronation. I don't even think he thought he could win. And he ended up ushering in a left awakening that galvanized an entire movement. Senator Sanders deserves a successor who can shoulder the weight of leading that movement so that he can serve as an elder statesman and frankly enjoy his golden years. A third presidential run is too much of a burden to ask of any one individual. And by the way, we all deserve a politics that is not dependent on one extremely dogged 80-year-old man. And Sagar, I do think it's very telling, even though, listen, I think Biden is- And if you want to hear my reaction to Crystal's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. All right, guys, we had a little bit of a change of plans. We're going to post the Kim Kelly interview later. Um, She has a wonderful new book out on labor history, but we are lucky to be joined by Ari Rabenhoft. He is the former deputy campaign manager of Bernie 2020. He is now um, enjoying his life uh, photographing sharks, I understand, (laughs) in addition to many other things, which probably gives you an even better perspective now that you're removed from the political bubble. And the reason we have him here today is because he is also the author of a new great book that I have just finished reading called The Fighting Soul on the Road with Bernie Sanders, which, um, are you should tell people about why you wanted to write the book, because it is very, like, inside the campaign in 2020, and as someone who is a Bernie Sanders supporter at the time, it was very painful to, like, relive some of the slings and arrows of the campaign. But what you say is you really wanted people to get a sort of true picture of who this man is and what makes him tick. Yeah, I feel, I felt like there are a million like post-mortem campaign books and profiles and very few people actually know who Bernie Sanders is as famous and as important and as influential as he is. And I really feel like that was an important story to tell. Who is Bernie Sanders? What drives him? What makes him tick? And kind of give people an actual flavor for this person who really did change the course of history. Mm-hmm. So, Ari, I mean, one of the important things that, to me, we have a limited amount of time, just can you give us some anecdotes about how centralized power was trying to influence your campaign and uh, not just the campaign, but Sanders in general, and what that looks like for people who wonder what corruption looks like on the inside? Sure. I think, you know, one of the quotes that has gotten some attention was the Obama quote, where mm. uh, Bernie, Obama, and I, the three of us were in a room together alone in 2018, and Bernie had this meeting with Obama to be like, you know, I'm thinking about it. What do you think? He really hadn't decided yet. Yeah. And th- it was this it was this intriguing moment that you have these two guys, both of whom, by the way, have big egos, mm-hmm. and in a room together having this conversation. And finally, Obama kind of turns to Bernie and is like, Bernie, you're an, you're an Old Testament prophet. You, like, give us a moral voice, but prophets don't get to be king. Uh-huh. And are you willing to, like, make the changes necessary? Are you willing to kind of 
be a broader figure? Are you willing to reach out to the the small business conservative Democrat right. in the South to be mm -hmm. part of your thing? Are you willing to are you if you want to lead the Democratic Party, are you willing to put on the jersey? And that that pressure really did exist on Bernie. And he really kind of pushed it aside at every angle. And then you have the media pressure where at different points in the campaign, look, there was the Bernie blackout. Yep. That was very, very real. There were points where our own beat reporters at times, people couldn't come out on the road with us because their editors were like, it's not worth us spending the we, budget we remember uh, to, to send yeah, out, yeah, yeah, to yeah, send people right. out with Bernie. And, uh, you know, I had this scene in the book that, uh, Crystal, you tweeted about where a reporter literally, and, and I don't want to give this person away because they were, they were actually like commiserating on this and mm -hmm. I feel like that's unfair, but they were like, they were like, yeah, my, my bosses want Kamala Harris to win. Wow. See, I mean, this is the thing is, look, obviously, I worked in media at MSNBC, and I always go back and forth about how sort of, like, outright the bias is yeah. and how people just, like, are drinking the Kool-Aid and they really think they're being honest. And that anecdote made me tilt more in the favor of, like, no, it actually is even more nefarious and more directed than you actually think that it is. I think it's actually all of the above because yeah. I think they don't think they're being biased. And mm -hmm. I would hear this from, like, we're not being biased. This is just the way the world is. Well, no, that's your biased look yep. at how the world is. This yeah. is a key point from Noam Chomsky, right, about uh, the way that you, you you would never have the ability to have the job if you weren't somebody who wasn't willing to go along. It, and so exactly. they, they can't conceive of, like, why exactly bias is inherent within it. I mean, I'd love for you to go into many, some more examples on the media front. I mean, we, we, Crystal and I lived it as kind of the original time that our show kind of came to prominence. Like, just give people more examples, because I think the more that you can iterate it, the people will say, wow, like, these are the real ways that this works whenever you're trying to challenge centralized Power. I mean, there's the story in the book, yeah. which is actually pretty remarkable, where uh, the the Washington Post reports that uh, the Russians are supporting Bernie's campaign. Yeah, I remember this. Yeah, and right. and like God. he's being asked about it now. Here's the thing: there's a bunch of like classified intel that Bernie knows because he's a senator. Mm -hmm. Also, uh, another person had told us they were doing reporting on some some of this. And we're like, that's not what the briefing said. The briefing said right. this other – the briefing basically said Russia just wants to sow discord. discord yeah. and, and part of that discord has been kind of trolling online and there was some – Bernie was subject of like – some of the Bernie trolls were part of that discord is what mm – -hmm. which is very different than supporting Bernie. Right. And then he gets asked about it on the tarmac and look, he has a moment where he like – points at a reporter and says, like, Washington Post, like, great friends or something. Yeah. <laughs> something like that. And it was like, it was like, there was this reaction among journalists, some of whom I really do respect and think are good journalists, but they were like, this was like the end of the world. And, and, and I was sitting there like, I, you know, I'm trying to be like, I have to be somewhat empathetic to this and we do have to kind of work with these people. But at the same time, it's like, that's not really, that's like your, your biggest Thing that Bernie was like, there Washington was, Post, great friends. Right. Like, there was an incredible freak out over that. And it actually, it's funny because it came up in today's show because yes. we were talking about Elon Musk. Yeah. And look, I am, I do not like it when billionaires own the means of communication. But they do. But I didn't like it when Bezos did it and I don't like it when Musk uh, did it. And so, 
you know, there are a lot of people who are um, really, really upset about Musk, but were on the other side and like defending the honor of Jeff Bezos in the Washington Post and said, oh, there's no, of course there's no bad influence. And that's what's like kind of remarkable at times. Remember, this is at the same period, this is in the same two week period where Bernie's getting called literally a Nazi on MSNBC. Right. At different points, right. which, you know, and, and by the way, they're going to like line people there up was in that, Central Park there's and that execute. kind of amazing scene that I just love. I put in because I loved it. I was then on Chris Matthews' show from the South Carolina uh, debate spin room. And he actually like he apologizes. And I, I actually believe it was a legitimate apology. Mm -hmm. He kind of just got into his own. I actually did believe it. We talked about it. So I'm going on his show. And just in the moments before he gets on the show, he's just like, I just effing love being on TV. And then, <laughs> and then a week later, he like, <laughs> canceled. canceled. Um, <laughs> well, there was another uh, media story that I think is also really interesting and important, something else that we covered, which was the whole Elizabeth Warren accusing Bernie of, you know, telling her privately that she couldn't win because she's a woman. Right. Um, and I think that, you know, first of all, you make the case, look, the only people in the room were Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and Warren's husband. Yeah. Um, and, you know, these news outlets were reporting they had like three or four sources for this. And you're like, there's there were only three people in the room. And obviously one of them is denying your reporting. So what are you doing here? But you also make the case that, you know, there were people on the campaign team who were fairly skeptical of Warren's abilities as a candidate. I would say those people were more or less proved correct. But Bernie was not one of them. That he was no. consistently, you guys, don't underestimate. She's very smart. She's very, you know, capable on the stuff. I've known she's her for two decades. I've, like, worked with her. She's she's so smart and capable. Don't, like, don't underestimate her. Like, and, th and it was so weird to me, the whole thing, as I point out, because, look, I've had hundreds of dinners with Bernie. I've talked about every subject known to man. And I've just, I know how he thinks about things and nothing ever even came close to what the Elizabeth Warren thing. So it kind of shocked me in that, like, who knows what happened in the room? But if he was going to say that, we probably would, like, I you know his opinion it, right? on it. And it just was so far away from anything he ever said. So what was the impact um, that you saw in the polls and with regards to, you know, who was, whose candidates were first choice and second yeah. choice and how that all sort of, um, you know, was determined by this moment. So it very much balkanized Warren and Bernie supporters. Yeah. Like before you saw some second choice, because Iowa has second choice, you saw some second choice Warren supporters mm -hmm. with Bernie. That kind of completely divided the camps in terms of things. You saw Bernie support among women take, take a fall uh, wow. after that. You saw, and look, the, the big thing was, I think what people didn't realize in terms of first choice support, Warren and Bernie were not conjoined Venn diagrams. Biden and Bernie were much closer in terms yes. of supporters. But if if one wasn't in the race, their supporters were more could have gone to the other candidate. Yeah. Except after that point, the it kind of just divided the camps completely. Mm, interesting. And then the other piece I wanted to get from you, Ari, is, you know, there, like you said, there's been a million postmortems and, um, you know, what could they have done different? And first of all, I wonder if you have any analysis of like, maybe we should have made X decision instead of Y decision. But the one that I find most compelling is clearly at the end of the day, you know, voters who said the thing they were most concerned about was the issues, they backed Bernie Sanders. Yeah. And those voters were overwhelmingly young. Voters who said, we just got to go with whoever can defeat Donald Trump, 
they lined up behind Joe Biden and that ends up being, you know, the direction that they go. And first of all, did you anticipate that would be the question that the campaign turned on? And second of all, given that, you know, for decades now, the media narrative has been the electable person is the person who's, you know, in the center and moderate and all of these things. Do you think you could have done more to overcome the narrative that Bernie Sanders was not the best candidate to defeat Donald Trump? I think there was a lot of moments in the campaign, especially in April, in the spring and the summer, we were very much on this Bernie beats Trump narrative. We put out polling. We did tours of the Midwest. We did things like the Fox News Fox Town News Hall, Town Hall. Where, which was to kind of prove, hey, Bernie can go in front of these audiences mm -hmm. and win them. Uh, we were doing a bunch of things like that. We were kind of constantly messaging. But the thing we quickly realized was the only thing that's going to prove to voters that that Bernie can win is by winning, mm -hmm. which is why it was so important to kind of win Iowa, win New Hampshire, blow out Nevada. The, the principal theory, the, the problem we always saw was Joe Biden was kind of unique among other candidates. And if we got to Super Tuesday one-on-one -on -one with Joe Biden, it, it was not going right. to be a good Super Tuesday because there's a certain segment of the party who is going to, who's open to Bernie but if it's the two of them one-on-one, -on -one, they're, going Biden, they're yeah. going Biden because of Obama, because, oh, you know, he's been vice president, he's tested, he's the guy. And that was a, that was a brick wall we did run into. I, I don't know what could have been done other, other than, and I think this is important, I talk in the book about kind of the moments Bernie pulled his punches on Biden. Yes. And the reason if, like, the, the problem isn't fixing the problem in February, I talk about in the book kind of in September when the campaign staff was very much like you have to go at Biden and Bernie rejected that notion. And is and that because of because what I've read is that, you know, Biden was nice to him at times when other senators weren't necessarily nice to him, that there was a true like sort of warmth between the two of them that made it potentially more difficult for the not the policy jabs, but the more direct questioning of, you know, some of the financial services and taking the money from them, some of the direct questioning of his corruption, was that harder for Bernie to do with Biden than it was for, say, him to do with Hillary Clinton? Well, or like in this race, Pete, like he stepped yeah. up in New Hampshire and got up at the politics and eggs breakfast when he needed to go at Pete yeah. and literally started reading off Pete's billionaire donor mm -hmm. headlines in front of the entire press yeah. corps. With Biden, look, there, I address it in the book. I talk about kind of their warm feelings, their interactions. I think there's that. I think he also had in his mind, and I think Bernie is a good strategist, and I also think he saw, hey, Biden-Bernie voters are together. If I'm too rough with this guy, does the kind of what happened with Elizabeth Warren, do I mm -hmm. lose access to those uh, working class voters that like Biden mm -hmm. that are mine too? I think that's in his head. And I think the combo of both uh, causes him to, to you know, it's the, it's been reported out ad nauseum before yes. my book, uh, Pull Punches, when, look, I think the, the, the question is, to get back to the original question, the, the solving the Super Tuesday problem isn't a February problem. It's a September right. mm. months, issue. Months and the question is, do you just try to take out Biden then so he's not a factor on Super Tuesday because you don't have the same problems? Like if it's Bernie Buttigieg on Super Tuesday, it's a very different right. yes. formula. Definitely, definitely. Well, guys, um, the book is really interesting. There are some wonderful anecdotes. There's some hilarious anecdotes in here, to be honest with you. Some interesting, never-before-seen uh, insights into what was going on in the campaign, including we didn't even talk about 
Facebook just blatantly admitting to you the yeah. way that they are shaping what people are seeing and how they're responding to your posts at the Sanders campaign. Um, so I recommend everybody check it out. The book is The Fighting Soul by On the Road with Bernie Sanders by Ari Rabenhoft, former deputy campaign manager. Ari, great to see you. Thanks for Thanks, coming Crystal. today. Thanks, Crystal. Thanks, Sagar. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, man. Our pleasure. Thanks for coming. Thank you guys so much for watching. We really appreciate it. Uh, premium subscribers, we love you. You guys make the show capable, and we've got all these awesome new partnerships. And we will see you guys on Thursday. See you all Thursday. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.